Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk with a Doc, the show where we bring common questions to medical experts for insight and information. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and today I have with me Dr. Arpan Wagre, a geriatric psychiatrist and CEO of Providence's Wellbeing Trust. We're here today to discuss the importance of mental health checkups and answer all your questions about what they are, the purpose they serve, and where you can get one. So let's get started by welcoming our guest, Dr. Arpan Wagre. Well, I, I know your backstory because I get to work with you every day, but let's start you off with a really easy question. Why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your role at Providence? Well, thanks for the easy question there. So I'm, uh, I'm a geriatric psychiatrist by training and currently serve as chief executive for Providence's Wellbeing Trust. Uh, this is a, a foundation that was created with a $100 million endowment to advance the mental, social, and spiritual health of the nation. Well, because I know you so well, Arpan, I know that you have a very long history in the mental health space and you've done amazing things. But tell us how you stay motivated to continue doing more and driving you know, this important work in such a space that can be very emotionally challenging. It certainly is emotionally challenging. And I will say, Mary, that over the past 20 years, my thinking has continued to evolve on, on this. I mean, first, it was just making sure that mental health was equitable in care to physical health. And as time has passed, I see this even as a larger issue, an issue of one of social justice. And I say that because people with serious mental illness die 10 to 15 years earlier than others, and mostly due to avoidable medical complications. They also have a downward socioeconomic trend. There's uh, higher rates of incarceration, homelessness. So there is so much that this group, the patients who struggle with these illnesses, are, are not treated fairly. They're marginalized by society. And so it is an issue that we really need to take seriously and collectively work to on. When you talk about kind of this almost inproportionate death rate, right? And we talk kind of about are some of these preventable deaths. It makes me initially go to preventable deaths in general when it comes to healthcare. And we think about screenings, right? We think about, you know, breast cancer and getting your mammogram. We think about, you know, testing for diabetes because of obesity, or, you know, can we prevent cancer by not smoking? Can we prevent some of these deaths with mental health checkups? I think is what I want to talk to you about today. So I'm going to start off really easy again. What is a mental health checkup? Yeah, no, and and I think to to first answer your question, I think the short answer is absolutely yes. We need to do better. We need to screen. We need to identify things earlier. So, so a mental health screen or a checkup is a standardized and validated tool. You know, we have a lot of them for almost every mental health disease category that can help the clinician assessing the patient uh, and and understanding where they're at. Uh, and not only do they help with the diagnosis and understanding the severity of illness, but it also helps as a tool to measure the impact of what their interventions are doing. So uh, a screen, you know, these validated tools can help us understand where you're at today. Is it, you know, an, an issue that you're just dealing with some some mild stressor or is it something that warrants clinical attention? And it's usually the screen in combination with the clinical assessment, but it provides an objective way for us to understand where you're at. Are there certain conditions or concerns that, that a screening maybe can look for more so than others? Well, I think we have so much, so many amazing uh, screening tools now that for almost all mood 
categories, uh, anxiety spectrum disorders, psychotic spectrum disorders, cognitive disorders, we do have great validated tools that have been studied really well. So I, I would say that for most categories, we do have validated tools. I would say one of the most common ones is a depression screening tool. So the United States Preventive Task Force recommended that everyone age 12 and older, uh, is spe specifically calling out patients who are pregnant and during postpartum, have an annual um, depression screen done at the time of their annual physical. So that's one that's a very common illness that's a leading cause of disability and one that I think we should definitely incorporate. So you're saying during your regular checkup. So is this something that I should be going to a primary care physician for? Yeah, I would say that, you know, when you do have your annual physical checkup, I mean, I and, you know, your wellness visit, I would see this as a part of that. Of course, if there's symptoms that are bothering you, just like anything else that triggers a visit to your doctor, then you should definitely talk to them about it and they could use it at that visit. But if you're doing well and it's not something that's top of mind for you, then I would definitely at a minimum include it as a part of your annual wellness visit. So I guess as a, a lay person, I'm going to ask the question, should I be asking my primary care physician for a mental health checkup or should they be asking me? I mean, they should be asking you a primary care. I mean, you don't go and ask them for uh, your hypertension, blood pressure to be checked and cholesterol to be checked. I mean, these are routine screens and I would expect that they happen as a part of, of routine care. But if they don't, I mean, it is important for every one of us to be our own health care advocates and we should speak for ourselves. And, and the challenge with depression especially is that many times we don't know whether we're just dealing with normal stressors or is it something that really warrants attention? Can I get help? And, and the stigma is so prevalent that, you know, it becomes harder. And I think the other part, Mary, is that these are very treatable conditions. So, you know, the longer you suffer with them, it gets harder to treat them. Why would you want to suffer when there's something that can be treated earlier on? I mean, it's kind of like cancer, right? The longer you let cancer go before you diagnose it or treat it, the harder it is, the less odds you have of survival, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I, I love the way you're framing it and trying to think about this as any other medical condition. And we do this all the time for everything else. So we get screens, just like you pointed out, for kind of colon cancer screening, mammograms. I mean, these are routine parts of healthcare, and as should be uh, depression, anxiety screenings at a minimum. How long does a typical screening take? So they're not very long questions, like the depression screening questionnaire is about nine questions, takes two to three minutes. So they're not terribly burdensome. It's, you know, and if people feel like it's harder for them to answer some of these questions, they're very personal to the medical assistant who might be rooming you, you know, you can always do these questions in the comfort of your home. They can be, you know, sent to you confidentially. You could do them through your electronic medical record and send it to your primary care ahead of your visit. There's so many ways in which you can do it. You can talk to your primary care physician, depending on your, but I think the point really being that it is something that we should all participate in. And it's not something that you should just do for the sake of doing, because it's important that you're being as uh, honest as you can with the questions, because that's how the physician can do something about it. What about this larger kind of growing population of people who don't have primary care physicians? What if I don't have a doctor to go to, but I want to do a screening? What are my options? Yeah, th that is a good question. I mean, first of all, I do believe that uh, primary care is is basic, is one of the most important critical elements of what we do. And so we should be a country where primary care is available to all because that's how we prevent bad things from happening. And But there are places where 
uh, we can get, you know, Mental Health America on their website has a lot of these tools and in the, their outline there. The only caution I would have is that it, it, the tools are not perfect by themselves. I mean, they, they are very helpful when they're used as an adjunct to your clinical assessment. So, you know, it's not like if you just have this number based on what you're saying over there that you absolutely have clinical depression. It is an indicator that you're there, but it has to be combined with other things that they need to pay attention to. So I would not advise our listeners to go and take a test and, and then get concerned about it. I think it's it's helpful to to take it, understand where you're at, but use that uh, it as a part of your discussion with with your with your provider. And if you don't have a primary care physician, you, and and it's a, the issue is related to mental health, and you've taken a screener, you know, by a Google search or Mental Health America or NAMI or one of these websites, then you can always uh, try to schedule some time and speak with a therapist and see is this you know this is what the screener says. Uh, should I be concerned? Is this something that warrants clinical attention, or can I do some self help stuff? So. At least it starts the conversation, Mary. Well, it's 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 great that you pointed that out. And I think, you know, seeing a therapist is always a great option. But what we hear more and more is that I can't get into a therapist. I can't find one. Or, or worse yet, right, I can't find one that speaks my language. I can't find one that looks like me. I can't find one that understands my, you know, my family background. So one of the things you at Wellbeing Trust is really focused on is kind of increasing access to mental health, and especially within the Providence footprint. Talk to me a little bit about how screenings improve access. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I, I like the way you called out all those very important issues. It's it's not only just about access to the therapist, but it's access that has the cultural responsiveness to your needs and understanding. So our one of our most foundational, I mean, we believe access is one of the most fundamental foundational elements of what we need to do to really improve mental health care. And so our approach at Wellbeing Trust has been to try to integrate uh, mental health across all physical health care settings. So there is no wrong door when you're coming in for care and you could receive care at any point, be it the primary care office, an OB office, we would hopefully the hospital setting, hopefully it's not a crisis, but even in the emergency departments, wherever you're at. Um, and screenings are a critical part of that. So, you know, more than half of the people who who require help or would benefit from help for, say, a condition like depression, don't ever get help because they, um, they're never screened or diagnosed earlier on. So they're both connected. I mean, we do need to have more access to screening tools, more awareness about what these things are, but that needs to be tied directly with access. And the way Wellbeing Trust is approaching this is, is it's not a simple issue that we can solve. I mean, it's, it's chronic underfunding over the past so many decades that we have to overcome. But the way we're approaching this is that we believe in team-based care. They're not going to be enough psychiatrists or psychologists to meet the needs of what everyone has. So we're very intentionally thinking about healthcare as, you know, as team-based care and, and allowing a psychiatrist to serve in combination with a therapist, with a mental substance use counselor, a primary care physician, to be able to have access and expand their reach to so many people. And that's how we're strategically trying to expand that access. I don't, I don't want to get too far off the topic <laughs> of, of screenings here, but what you just said was, you know, working with substance abuse people as well. I think people don't necessarily think that alcohol or opioids or any of those are really mental health issues. Talk to me about what types of, of conditions or what types of people or people experiencing certain things you would recommend to get a screening. I would say anyone with uh, who feels like their functionality, their social functioning or occupational functioning 
is impaired or limited by what they're dealing with. Now, this could be, you know, symptoms of mood symptoms, anxiety, or substance use, even if they do not feel that this is that their alcohol uh, is problematic, if it is impacting their social life or occupational life, then there are tools to screen them that give them a uh, more objective way to look at everything. So I would say any of these conditions can be screened for and should be screened for. Is there any demographic or type of person or age or anything that you really think we should be pressing hard to do the screenings? I mean, I would say, I, I, I don't know if I would limit it to any particular group. Like we said earlier, the United States Preventive Task Force has looked at this at a population level and made these recommendations. I would go back to some of what they have already outlined. So definitely, you know, children 12 and older adults, older adults. The population that I would specifically call out again would be pregnant and postpartum patients. That's a group that, um, unfortunately, the stigma really prevents them from getting help. And Mary, you know, mood disorders, depression and anxiety are the most common complication of childbearing. I'm going to say that again, because it is so important and so often missed, you know, depression, anxiety are the most common complications of childbearing with about almost 15% prevalence. And you think about this, you know, every new mom gets a glucola test, right? So this test to check if you have uh, gestational diabetes, and that's standard and important and critical must happen. Yet a condition that has such a significant impact on so many new moms is not screened for on that routine basis. You know, there is a tool, there's an Edinburgh depression rating scale that has great evidence behind it. It can, it can help so many new moms. So, and the timing of this too. So, you know, just staying with that particular example, you know, most new moms are, might start struggling with depression and it's hard for them to even know if this is just normal baby blues. Am I dealing with just sleep deprivation or is this something that warrants clinical attention. And and by the time they have their first visit with their OB, they're probably suffering for all those weeks there. So a part of what we're doing through our work with Wellbeing Trust and, and with the Providence Clinics is to try to incorporate screening at the well baby visit. Every new mom's going to bring their baby for their well, more and more of that. You know, we just want to get ahead, get ahead of everything. Well, you're kind of ahead of me because I was going to ask you how Providence is using these screenings, but tell me a little bit more. Yeah, so we're we're taking uh, a multi-pronged approach. We also want to take advantage of technology and and really minimize the burden on primary care physicians and patients alike. We want to keep it as simple as possible. So we are trying to incorporate. So we through the electronic medical record, there are reminders, uh, you know, an alert that can help the primary care physician know that this patient's due for this. So you know, that's one one way. There are uh, automated. Uh, uh, tests that are being sent out to people uh, through their electronic medical records. So before they have their clinic visit, they could they would have access to the depression and anxiety screening tools. They could do that in the comfort of their home. And then they're, you know, when they come to their visit, they're ready to talk about it. If it's an issue, then they have, you know, a plan for it. So there are all these approaches that we're trying to take, Mary. I love it. Yeah. Well, I have a question for you. So my parents are, um, you know, Medicare age. And they just started getting those questions when they have their kind of yearly Medicare uh, check-in. And it's funny because my former primary care physician works at Providence is now only doing the Medicare visits. And it's one of the things she loves is to talk to them about mental health. So how did that get going? And and that's a very at-risk population, right? So much has changed in their life. They might become vulnerable. Talk to me a little bit about that. So in that population, you know, there's, there are a few things you need to pay attention to. And, you know, that was something that 
was very it was very close to my heart clinically because I think there's so much you can do. Uh, you know, I think there's there's a very fundamental resigned acceptance that if you're older, then you you know the, these are problems that happen, and that's not the case. We need to fundamentally shift our attitude. And you know, when I would have a, a, an elderly patient come to my clinic, I many years ago stopped asking them the question, what's the matter with you? And I would start asking them what matters to you and build my entire visit around the two or three things they tell me are most important for them. But in that age group with a very, very high risk of depression and a lot of the symptoms might mimic things that are happening, you know, as a part of the aging process. I mean, they might, they might have, you know, they might not be as active. They might have some difficulty with sleep and appetite. Uh, and I think it's really important to put that in context and use the right screening tools. There are geriatric uh, screening tools that are more specific for those age groups. The other thing, Mary, is that doing a simple cognitive test, this is something that I would highly encourage everyone if they're not already doing it. But even if your parents are going to their, their doctor, you know, there's a, it takes about three minutes or so. There's a test called Minicog. It gives you three words to remember, ask you to repeat those three words, and then ask you to draw a clock um, and put the two hands of the clock at 10 minutes past 11. This entire thing takes you three minutes, gives such valuable information and, and helps the doctor understand if you're starting to have some cognitive impairment and do they need to do more versus it's just uh, you know a normal process of aging and you're okay. So I think these tools in this screening is very, very important. I've done that clock and three word thing after my like fourth traumatic brain injury. So I know how that works. I know yeah. how that works. So if I'm a patient and I, I want to have a mental health screening and let's just say my physician doesn't offer it, how do I as a person ask my physician to make that happen? Yeah. I mean, I think a part of it is how it is your relationship with your primary care physician. I would say that if this is the way you approach health overall. Uh, so as I would go to my primary care physician and ask them about all the preventive screening, I and mean, this is a part of my normal visits that I do with my primary care physicians. Like at my age, some of it I read ahead of time, but then I'll, I go and ask them at my age, what are all the things that I'm at risk for that I would warrant screening for? And, and I make it a point to say both from, I don't take this for granted just because I'm a psychiatrist. It doesn't mean that uh, when I'm a patient I, or, and I'm going to my primary care visit, I ask specifically to say, what are all the things that I'm at risk for, both from a physical health and a mental health perspective? And can we make sure that we're checking that? And, and I'm not afraid or ashamed to be my own advocate. And, and, some, you know, and most of the times the physician is absolutely aligned and many times they're already ahead of that and they're thinking about it. But Mary, if they don't and they miss it because they're busy or they're focused on, on something else, it's all right to ask them and say, what are all the preventive things that we need to do today or talk about? Well, and you mentioned earlier, right, that you could maybe answer them through my chart. Is is that something if maybe I forgot I wanted to do it at my annual wellness exam, can I send a note and ask? Absolutely. Absolutely. And they could they could send it to you in a secure uh, my chart message. You could take it and that information is is received by them, reviewed by them. And and just like other blood tests, like sometimes you go to your doctor's visit and you're not fasting at that time. So they might send you to get some fasting blood labs. It happens all the time for all of us. Right. And then you get a my chart message and you say, well, this is your lab result. They didn't know what those lab results were when you visited with them, uh, but they ordered it later. That can happen in this case too. And so it's absolutely fine. I, but I think as long as we're, we're aware of this and we're, we're proactively having this discussion, I think it'll, it'll, it'll go a long way. So let's say I do, I go to my doctor, they give me the screening. 
what happens after that? I get my results. They give me the results. Do they send me somewhere? How does that work? Yeah. So like I said, I mean, the, the screening tool by itself is not definitively diagnostic. It's usually used in combination with their clinical assessment. So they would like ask you questions about what's, you know, is your functioning impacted? Are there things that are happening? And then they use the score along with their assessment of you and, you know, and then if you are, say, diagnosed with a, a condition like major depression or anxiety, uh, many of those conditions can be treated right there by the primary care physician in their office. So, you know, at least in the Providence setting, in a vast majority of our clinics, we have a behavioral health provider who is a part of that team. So if these results were to happen, they would say, if you're a Providence patient, in many situations, they would call you and say, well, you know, I have a member of my team who's right here in my clinic who coordinates with me all the time and they can help you. You don't have to go to that other place to see this other therapist and they, you know, they can help you with some brief focus solutions. And, and if you need medications, then they could consult with their in-house psychiatrist and start you on something and, and then reassess and get that same screening tool again to see how are you improving. And then as you start improving, then they can um, you know, move you. And if you need more help, then they can help navigate and get you to, to a specialist if that's needed. It's so amazing to think that the first step in your mental health journey could be in a primary care physician's office where you know them and you're comfortable rather than where we see so many of them in an emergency room or something like that. I mean, what a great experience for your kind of first encounter. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's how it should be. I mean, you know, when I think about all the care we deliver in the emergency department and the hospitals for mental health, I mean, yes, those are critical for us to deliver, but many times they're a failure of our own system. If we had screened earlier and we had helped people earlier, we would hopefully not let them get to that point where we're in that crisis. So, and you know, that's, the, that's exactly what we're all uh, striving uh, towards, Mary. I hate to ask this question, but how long is this going to take, right? Because I think it was 2022 was the highest number of suicides we'd ever seen, according to the CDC. So it's really this is this crisis, this mental health crisis seems to be only getting worse. So this is a little bit of a long game, I think, isn't it, Arpan? Like how, how effective do you think this will be over time? No, it, it is a really good question. It's an important one. Uh, I think we need to approach this work with a lot of humility. There is science. There are things that work. And we know that when we get those treatments to people that work and have evidence, things do get better. But unfortunately, here's what we're stuck with. I mean, it goes back to our earlier part of the conversation. More than half of the people who need help are not getting help. And that's also because of stigma and lack of proactive screening. But even when people are screened, less than a third of them actually get the best evidence-based care. Um, and, and I think those things are going to be a critical part of how we advance. Now, there are a lot of things we're trying to do, um, you know, at Providence, for example, to address deaths by suicide, we have joined with other organizations. We, you know, we want to approach this with humility that we have to learn from others and with others. So we have joined uh, forces with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and three other systems in a national learning collaborative to really drive that change. And so hopefully some of that work and all these things that we continue to do 
uh, and and other systems like us joining will hopefully change that number that we're saying. But but there's more than the healthcare sector, Mary, for this. These are medical problems that need a medical and a social response. And so if we don't really think about it comprehensively, then it becomes harder and harder for us to really uh, move the needle on, on some of these things, like especially deaths by suicide. Such a hard topic. I know I said it would be comfortable to be in my primary care physician's office, and I feel that way because I know mine and I have such a great relationship with her. But how are our primary care physicians feeling about this area? Because I know that when I first started working with you guys around mental health, it was such a scary topic for me. I was like, what if I say the wrong thing? How are we training our primary care physicians to have these screenings and be able to move to that next step? I I actually like that question a lot because I think it is unfair to expect a a very busy primary care physician to just have all the skill sets to do everything. Uh, You know, there's, they, they're great. They really, you go into primary care because you have a heart to really prevent illness. And so there's a certain type of people who go into that and and they can expand their skill sets. But the way we're thinking about this is that we need to make sure that we're supporting them. So that's where it goes back to having teams in those clinics that support the busy primary care physician. Uh, We're actually now trying to use AI chatbots and other just-in-time support tools to help that busy primary care physician at that point in care. Like, what do I do next? I mean, this is what's happening with the patient. This is what I've done. What do I do next? And, And so really giving them that kind of guidance and support. So having therapists available, to do warm handoffs and support them, uh, to provide technology-enabled tools and support uh, and other things, and education on an ongoing basis. I mean, it's a combination of all these things. Well, Arpan, I know that um, frontline caregivers kind of are are hit pretty hard in the last few years, and, and I know that Providence is actually using mental health screenings with our own internal caregivers. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, help-seeking behavior is something that unfortunately doesn't come naturally to those who who are in the healthcare workforce. You know, our own health and well-being is an, is usually an afterthought. It's part of the training. You're always, you know, on that forefront wanting to help others and and it's very easy to neglect your own health. So, we have taken multiple steps to make sure we're doing two things. One is if any one of our uh, health, you know, co-workers, caregivers raises their hand and wants help, that they have seamless access to support based on their needs and preference. That's job number one, that's foundational. And simultaneously recognizing that many who might need help could be suffering in silence. So we created an entire program called No One Cares Alone to proactively reach out to to those who might be suffering in silence and normalize the conversation and help them. There's so many things I could ask you, Arpan. the one one thing I wasn't hundred percent clear on is this GAD seven. That was that was in one of the conversations that I, I yeah. read some information about. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, remember when we started, we said the United States Preventive Task Force. There's that's the group that um, looks at all public health concerns and makes recommendations to primary care physicians who are extremely busy and and they can't do everything. So if they had to prioritize things, which would be the ones they would screen for? And there has to be some science behind that, right? So depression was one that was validated, and that's that that has been endorsed, and we've been doing that. And we use something called the PHQ nine for that. That, uh, and then 
the other one most recently added by the United States Preventive Task Force is for anxiety screening. And, and, and they recommended that adult patients, so 18 up to 65, are at a very high risk for anxiety disorders, usually go undiagnosed or undertreated or untreated and have a very significant impact on their uh, quality of life. And these are treatable conditions. So based on all of that, they recommended that a proactive screening tool is administered. So the GAD-7 is one of those proactive tools. And it's one that Providence has um, uh, deployed just like we did for the depression on using some automation. Again, trying to really make it very easy for our patients and our caregivers. Well, Arpan, there's so much work to be done in this space. And I just, I feel like you're your heroic efforts are definitely being noticed. Are there areas, though, where you feel like this screening can make a bigger difference? And I know we talked a little bit about women and, and, and pregnancy and that sort of thing, but are we thinking maybe school-aged children? I know we talked a little bit about geriatrics, but where, where do we think maybe this underserved population can be best met with screenings? Yeah, no, I love that question. And I'm glad you brought up schools because when you think about it, that's most mental illnesses start very early in life, you know, almost the age of 14 or, or so. And those with serious mental illnesses usually have almost 11 year lag between when they first start having symptoms and when they actually get professional help and care. And a part of that is because it's very hard to discern and understand what those symptoms are. Are they related to a mental illness, sometimes the, you know, the person might just become more withdrawn and you might think that, well, that's a normal part of what teenagers experience and so on. So I would say that in that age group, it's even more important uh, to, to proactively screen. And, and again, the, the pediatrician's office is one place where that should be happening. But in schools too, there should be, you know, just like the programs that you have led, Mary, the Work to Be Well program. I mean, what you have done with that work is just normal normalize the conversation around mental health and mental wellness and, and democratize knowledge in a way that the children are now empowered. They know what's happening. Teachers, educators are empowered. And I think we need to do more of that and couple that and pair that with, you know, these screening tools administered through a pediatrician's office. And when we do both of them together, we really get more people uh, who need help earlier on. So we prevent, first of all, we hopefully prevent illnesses from happening. And then when they are happening, we identify them earlier and treat them so that we prevent them from becoming a bigger problem. Isn't Providence uh, and the Wellbeing Trust, aren't you working with other partners like uh, Hazel Health to help bring some of these screening tools to the schools, even maybe because some of those students don't have access to healthcare? Yeah, yeah, no, that's another great example. So this one uh, partnership that we have with uh, with local sports team, uh, the Seattle Sounders and Providence, we decided to partner, as you're aware, with the Renton School District. And, and this is a school district where the children might not have access to a lot of resources. You know, many of them do not come from very privileged backgrounds. So what we realized is that the more we bring access to therapy in these schools, the easier it is going to be for the children. So with this partnership that we entered with Hazel Health actually does two things. It brings kiosks into these schools. So if a child you know, meets with their counselor or their teacher and they decide that they want to get some mental health support, it's confidential. It's in, you know, in a place where others would not know. They could go and avail themselves of that. Or if they wanted, the Hazel Health team can then also help 
schedule an appointment for them after hours, weekends from their home and do all this virtually with them. So this way they have access. And, and this partnership has allowed us to bring access to 15,000 kids of, with no cost to them. I mean, it's that's the stuff that we should be doing more of in every school. Uh, it's the stuff that inspires us to come to work every day, right? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Arvind, you are fabulous and you're a great interview. And I, I'm going to ask you the same question I ask everybody, which is what did I miss, right? If there's one thing you wanted to talk about or something around screenings that I didn't get uh, the question to you, what would you share with audience? I mean, I think you 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 covered so much. And if there is anything that I would probably not, you don't think you've missed it, but I would just underscore that, you know, look, we have to start normalizing mental health and talk about it. I mean, I I'll, I'll leave with, uh, you know, a quote that I recently heard from the director of NIMH, past director. He said, there are only two types of families in America. One, that have availed themselves of a mental health service for themselves or a loved one. The second type of family who have not availed themselves of mental health service yet. And so the reality is that we need to normalize this. And if there's one thing that we want to leave our listeners with is, it you know, have have these conversations with your friends, with your loved ones, with your family members, with your primary care physicians. Let's not try to, you know, the, you don't need to be suffering in silence. You can do better. There are so many treatments. Just think about this as, and, and we've come a long way in other illnesses. We never used to talk about cancer this way, the HIV AIDS epidemic. We used to talk, you know, those things were hush hush. We'd never talk about them. And, and when we did, and those things were normalized, you started seeing lives being saved. And I think we need to do the same thing. This is the time for us to do that together. Very wise words. Thank you, Arpan and the audience for joining us today on Talk with a Doc. We look forward to continuing the important conversation on health and wellness with more experts from Providence in our future episodes. Thank you so much for having me, Mary. Make sure to listen to all our shows on Dash Radio under the Future of Health radio station or on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our mission, programs, and services, visit providence.org. And please remember, the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening, and remember that Providence, we see the life in you.